Psalm 66. Shout for joy to God, all the earth. Sing the glory of his name. Make his praise glorious. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe before you. All the earth bows down to you. They sing praise to you. They sing the praises of your name. Come and see what God has done, his awesome deeds for mankind. He turned the sea into dry land. They passed through the waters on foot. Come, let us rejoice in him. He rules forever by his power. His eyes watch the nations. Let not the rebellious rise up against him. Praise our God, all peoples. Let the sound of his praise be heard. He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. For you, God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on our backs. You let the people ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. I will come to your temple with burnt offerings and fulfil my vows to you, vows my lips promised and my mouth spoke. When I was in trouble, I will sacrifice fat animals to you and an offering of rams. I will offer bulls and goats. Come and hear all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. His praise was on my tongue. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God has surely listened and has heard my prayer. Praise be to God who has not rejected my prayer or withheld his love from me. I wonder who's feeling discouraged. I wonder who's feeling discouraged in their own Christian walk because perhaps in the Lord's providence you've been brought through a season of testing that has felt very, very long. And perhaps for you in your Christian life, all you can think about at the moment are the challenges and the struggles of being a Christian. Perhaps you're challenged spiritually because you're looking beyond yourself and you're seeing the battles that are coming for being known as a Christian in school or the workplace. Perhaps you're looking further afield or even in this own country and you're thinking about the battles that have come for being known as a Christian or for meeting with Christians. Maybe you're feeling discouraged because you're looking around at the political turmoil in our nation and not just of the past week but of the past few months and thinking how could it possibly get any worse and then it does. Maybe you're discouraged as you look around internationally and you see the horror that is continually being inflicted upon the people of Ukraine. But not only there, we know that every news report we hear about, there are 10, 15, 20, 30 others that we don't, that are equally horrific. We were told by the heads of the MI5 and FBI this week that as far as they're concerned, we are facing what they consider immense threats to our economic and national security. We witnessed the assassination of a former head of state in their own country. And, and for those and many other reasons, perhaps if you're really honest, for all that we've just been singing, you're actually really discouraged. 
And I say all of that because it is into all of that discouraging experience that God has blessed us with this psalm. As we begin this series over the summer, looking at some of the psalms, there's lots of S's there, um, and Lord willing, we're going to drop this series into the morning series for a few weeks while Matthew and I are here over the course of the summer. So there's some continuity to what we are doing. I wanted to start here partly because it's one of the psalms that I read during the course of my devotions this week, but partly because this psalm is here to be a bearing reset. This psalm is here to help us reorient our worldview because the God of heaven and earth who made you and me knows that what shapes us so often is what is in front of us and what we are surrounded by. And with this great gift in this psalm, God lifts our eyes to see the bigger eternal perspective. Um, I had a moment at the end of home group when I was trying to find a place on Google Maps and I turned my phone on and my phone popped up with this message to say, you need to recalibrate the bearings on your phone before you can do it. So if you're in my home group, you'd have seen me waving my phone around, looking like a bit of a wombat, really, to try and help my phone reorient its bearings. For all the power that Google possesses, even my phone needed to have its bearings reset. And in a similar way, this psalm is here for us in all of the weariness and all of the discouragement to have that bearing reset and be reminded of what is ultimately true. And the big idea of Psalm 66 is it's no hidden surprise is that because of who God is and what he has done, believers are to lead the earth in praising him. I want you to see the enormity of all of this. I wish I'd put concentric circles on my PowerPoint. I failed to do so. For those of you who are helped by visual images, picture this psalm really as operating in three concentric circles. You're going to start with a call to the whole earth. Then within that, you're going to have a call to believers. And then right in the middle of that, it's a call to you and me. And that's the way this whole psalm hangs together. You've got two big sections, really. If you look in verses 1 to 12, there's this call to corporate praise, beginning with the whole world, and then within that, verses 5 and following, to believers. And then in verses 13 to 20, all the pronouns change. We go from you and us to I. And all of it is a personal, individual call to worship. And if you track both of those sections, you see that there's a call to worship, then there's reasons to worship or, or a witness of what is going on, and then another call to worship. There's, there's the big structure of the psalm. What I want you to see this evening is the enormity that becomes specific. We're going to begin in verses 1 to 4, where we see that God will be praised by all people. Verse 1 is a command, shout in the, in the Hebrew. It's an imperative. It's a command to shout for joy, not just for Christians, not just for our small gathering. You know, what are we? About 100 and something people in Leamington, and we know there are people in St. Paul's and Kenilworth and Mighton and Salzford and, and other places in our town that are praising God, but it's not very many, is it? This call isn't just for us here it's a command from the God of heaven to all men and women and boys and girls in the earth. Whatever you may believe subjectively, objectively, every person is a creature in God's world. 
And we're called to worship him. Andy reminded us just a few weeks ago of, of the first answer to one of the famous catechism questions in the history of our church. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this psalm is reminding you that that is our big purpose. God is the creator and sustainer of all things, whether we recognize it or not. And he commands, he doesn't just invite, he commands all people to glorify him and enjoy him forever. Now, we can't force people to do that. For everybody who's involved in door-to-door or book table evangelism or just speaking to your mates or where you live and in your workplaces and wherever you are, perhaps there's a bit of you that would long to be able to have the power to convince people to come to faith. We don't have that power resides with the God of heaven and earth, who, by the way, loves sinners more than we ever could. We don't bang on the door of a reluctant God. But here is this wonderful reminder that God is commanding all people to praise him, whether they currently choose to or not. And actually, that command has this wonderful hope in verse 4 that ultimately that is what all people will do. Verse 4, there will come a day when all the earth will bow down to you. They will sing praise to you and sing the praise of your name. And not only are they going to sing, but, verse 2, the praise itself is going to be glorious. John Calvin has this lovely way of reminding us that we should be praising proportionate to what it is we're praising. So, Everybody loves to sing. Well, not everybody, but you know, most people love to sing. Glastonbury reminded us of that. Sporting events and concerts during the course of the summer are going to remind us of that. There's something in the human nature that just loves to sing. And it's a good thing to sing. But there is nothing and no one to whom we should sing with greater joy and reverence than the God of heaven and earth. Because there's no one like him. There is no one else without beginning or end. There is no one else with his power and majesty and glory. There is no one else who exists in an eternal, indivisible, triune nature of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no one like our God who calls all people everywhere to praise him. And not just to praise him, but with all of that captivating our hearts, when we come and sing, we are to make, verse 2, make his praise glorious. We get a glimpse of that in church life from time to time, don't we? Hannah and I won't forget the first time we came to Heath Terrace. Feels like many, many moons ago now when we were starting to get to know the church and you were starting to get to know us. First time we ever came into this room, it's quite full, and everybody stood ready to sing. The piano started to play. And then God's people sang. And Hannah and I, we were sat right there. Hannah and I turned around and looked at each other and smiled. Here are a people who love making his praise glorious. Not just singing, but knowing that that singing is something that is done from hearts that have been completely transformed and is being brought to the God of heaven and earth. That's something of what is going on here. But, but why do we sing? Well, we sing because of who he is, but we also sing because of what he's done. That's the focus in verse 3. Say to God, how awesome are your deeds. So great is your power that your enemies cringe 
before you. Now, in our day, we have shrunk the word awesome. Thanks to the Lego movie, everything is awesome. Everything is awesome. Everything is cool when you're part of a team. Everything is awesome when you're living out a dream. That's what so many of the world, our friends, think of when they hear the word awesome. It's not what the psalmist has in mind. The psalmist has in mind that looking at the very nature of God, we are reminded that in himself, there is an awe that rightly should lead us to fear him in all the good and right senses of that word. Um, As a staff team, we have been working through this book over the last few months, Rejoice and Tremble by uh, Mike Reeves. And as, um, as Alison and Rachel and Matthew and I have been working through this, I think we would all say that some chapters have been more challenging than others but that all of it has been good. And if you've not yet read a book on what it means as Christians to fear God, we would commend this one to you. Uh, What we were thinking about this week was how in a good and right sense, we should be overwhelmed by the wonder and the awe of God as we see him in creation. And Mike introduced us to this guy, whose name is Rudolf Otto, who was a German who lived in the early 20th century. Um, And he coined... A new word. Everybody wants a new word on a really hot Sunday evening, don't they? His word was numinous. And by it, what he meant was, he's trying to get at this idea of, of what it means to know that there is, there is a being out there who is so utterly, unimaginably awesome that to engage with him is an experience that you can't really put into words. So he created this word numinous, and by it, he meant the quintessential religious experience that's beyond our reason. And he wrote in Latin, he had this phrase, mysterium tremendum et fascinans, by which for you and I it means that the numinous, this idea of a God who is so holy, just thinking about him is a completely otherworldly experience. He he is mysterious and inexpressible, tremendous and awe-inspiring and fascinating. Now that's Otto. If you read the rest of the book, Reeves helpfully explains that Otto didn't really get to a Christian understanding of the fear of God because he didn't begin with and stick with the Bible to understand the complete nature of the character of God. But at least he got something of the fear right. You go looking around the world or just jump onto Google and see some of the discoveries of of prehistoric and ancient caves where people who lived hundreds and thousands of years ago in countries that didn't hear about the gospel for a very, very long time. You dig into their caves. You look at some of the murals on the walls and for what little they understood by looking at the world, they knew that out there somewhere was a God to be feared. What followed after that was horrendous and wrong because all they had was that idea. So they would offer sacrifices, sometimes of their own children, to try and appease that God. All of that is wrong. But there is this sense in us that the God who is God is awesome. Which means verse 3 is both a warning and a message of hope. For all who oppose God. We are pointed in verse 3 towards a day 
when even those who refuse to bow the knee will cringe and bow before the God of heaven and earth. And if you know in your heart that you are not yet right with that awesome God, please don't wait for that day because you will be forced to bow and face the God who is awesome in his deeds and whose power is great. But for those who love him, this verse is one of amazing hope because there is a day coming when every single person will praise God. So I want you to think about the things that are discouraging you at the moment spiritually. I want you to think about the nations that you might be praying for in the course of your prayer life this week. Perhaps you're using the Persecuted Church app or you're thinking about other countries that we support as a church. You think about the situations that they are in. Here is a reminder that every single person who sets themselves up against God, every single person who rails against him, every single person who persecutes and hurts those who love him, every single person who even kills people who love him, will one day be brought to bow the knee before the God of heaven and earth. That's why this psalm is that, that bearing reset. It reorients our hearts when we're discouraged by all the stuff that we see around us. God gives us this psalm to tell us that's the end of the story. So have hope to persevere until we get to that finish line. Now, God doesn't just leave us with general revelation and this inexplicable, inexplicable feeling. He, he gives us throughout history these gracious revelations of his awesome deeds. And that's what the psalmist moves to in verses 5 to 12. Our second point, together we're to tell of God's great deeds. It's a key part of what was in the psalmist's life. It's a key part of what it means for us as Christians. In verse 5, we are called to invite people to come and see what God has done. Matthew reminded us this morning that Christian faith isn't one of... Wishful thinking, make-believe, and a blind leap of faith. It's an invitation to come and see what the God of history has done in history. And it's our responsibility to tell other people. Now, if you were a Jew in the psalmist's day, and you were doing door-to-door evangelism with your Gentile friends who lived around the corner, you would go and tell them of the greatest act in history that God had done that they would be left in awe and wonder. And there was no rescue story in the ancient world like the Exodus. You've got two bookended water crossings that give you the whole story of the Exodus. So we're all really familiar with you come out of Egypt, you're heading towards this barrier of the Red Sea, and God in his awesome power separates this rushing river. If anybody ever tells you, by the way, in school, I got this when I was a teenager. Oh, God didn't really separate a rushing river. It was just a little trickle. Well, the wonder would be that as the Israelites had crossed, God then killed all the Egyptians with a little trickle. Take your miracle however you choose. I prefer to believe the Bible, which says that the river was running a torrent. And God separated the rivers. And the people walked through. The enemies came to back. And then God destroyed the enemies. But that's not the only miracle miraculous water crossing because after 40 years in the wilderness God brings his people to the edge of the Jordan River 
And it's there as an echo to remind the people of what happened at the Red Sea. You've got the story in Joshua 3, if you want to read it when you get home. The people come up to this river. It's the harvest season. This river is in flood. But as soon as the priests carrying the covenant step into the edge of the water, God dries up, holds up the water upstream. And all of the people walk through on dry land. And then the minute the priests come out the Jordan on the other side, Joshua 4 verse 18 tells us, no sooner had they set their feet on the dry ground than the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and ran in flood as before. Now, all too often when I have read the miraculous water crossings, I've thought, what an amazing thing for the Jews to remember. What an amazing thing to know as God's people that he's got that amount of power and could not only rescue us at the beginning of the Exodus when we were being pursued by the Egyptians, but then bring us safely into the promised land. It's, it's the wonderful fulfillment of all of God's plan. But there's more to the story of those water crossings than that. And if you go home and read Joshua 4, you will read this in verses 23 and 24. This is what Joshua told the people of why God did it. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. You see, the Red Sea, the Jordan crossing, it wasn't just a story for the Israelites. It was a story for the whole earth to know the power of God. And that power is always at work in the lives of his people. That's what verses 7 to 12 show us. Our God is ruling everywhere all the time. Spurgeon has a lovely way of putting it. He says that he oversees all and overlooks none. That's the ruling power of God. He oversees all and overlooks none. That doesn't mean we always understand how he's ruling everywhere. But at least we know that he is ruling everywhere. And he's ruling over every circumstance. Verses 9 to 12 are verses that, to me, they echo Joseph's understanding of the sovereignty of God. Think about what Joseph came to understand. Genesis 50. You look at this psalm. This psalm is reminding us that God is the one who brings us into prison. God is the one who lays burdens on our backs. God is the one who lets people ride over our heads, which is a a Hebraism. It kind of means um, uh, that people tyrannize or insult you. That's what it means to ride over your heads here. But over all of that, verse 10, God is testing us and refining us like silver. How does a silversmith make a dirty cloudy piece of something looks like brilliant silver doesn't put it in the furnace once puts it in again and again and again to burn off that dross so that what is left is beautiful and shiny and that's what the Christian life is like God is constantly refining us so that over time and time and time we will become as holy as it is possible for creatures to be. Now that goal is glorious, but the process is hard. The Welsh preacher who ministers in America, Derek Thomas, he loves to tell the story of a man who wasn't really able to read. And whenever he faced 
a trial in life, he would open his Bible. It's a Christian man. Now, he had opened this big book full of lots of words and letters that he didn't fully understand. But as he would trace these words, he would land on some like this and put his finger on them and say, it came to pass. And then he would say, thank God that it didn't come to stay. It came to pass. Now, if you're in the middle of a season of trial, I cannot tell you when your season will pass. But I can promise you that in the scene of eternity, it will. God will sustain you until it does. And in the lovely way that Spurgeon writes, there is hope here because all too often we feel those discouragements and those struggles and feel like we're the only Christian who could possibly be feeling it. I must be an awful Christian. And then we're into a spiritual spiral of doom. Spurgeon has a lovely way of commenting on verse 10. God had one son without sin, but he never had a son without trial. God had one son without sin, but even the Lord Jesus Christ experienced the kinds of trials that are being described here. And we need to be reminded of that because our trials and struggles are not evidence that God is forgetful. They're evidence that he is faithful, that he is using every single circumstance in your life to refine you, to make you more and more like his son. That's his promise That's what he has said he will do. He will get you to glory and turn you into the image of his son whom he loves. And the way he does that is through trials. Which perhaps for you look like being known as a Christian in a school where you don't know any other Christians. Or perhaps in a family where you're the only Christian. Or perhaps your trial at the moment is being pulled away from the comfort and ease of life so that you are left longing for a world that is your eternal home. Perhaps your trial is serving in the church. And actually, some of the discouragements have become so hard that you are thinking about quitting those roles. Whatever the trial may be, God is working through them to refine us and bring us eternally, verse 12, into a place of abundance. Together, we're to tell of God's great deeds. Now, for the Israelites, that was the story from Abraham through the Red Sea, through the Jordan River, and into the Promised Land. But our history is better. Our history is better. In the Lord Jesus, we have an even better rescue story. The greatest power demonstration of God wasn't at a river... It was at a cross, a cross where love and mercy meet and a guilty world is washed by love's pure stream. I've been reminded in John's gospel recently about how Jesus experienced verses 11 and 12 of our psalm in a greater depth than we ever will. For our eternal good, he was imprisoned. He took upon himself Not just a burden, but the full weight of all of our sin and the judgment of our holy God upon it. He endured the insult and the tyranny and the mocking of a crowd and did all of that to rescue sinful people like me and everyone who will trust in Jesus from our bondage to sin. 
That's the greatest of all deeds. Together we are to tell people. But on top of that, individually, we're to worship and witness to the God who has done these great deeds. You see the pronouns shift in verses uh, 13 to the end, from the us to the I. You've got the psalmist bringing all of his sacrifices to the temple, and as he does so, he cries out to other people to join him personally. Verse 16, come and hear all you who fear God. Let me tell you about what he has done for me. This is not for preachers. Well, I'm included in this because I'm an individual too, but not because of the role of preaching. This is for all of us. Every single person whose life has been transformed by God. Here, here is the psalmist showing us how important our personal story and testimony is. That's what will be so encouraging if you're able to come to the members meeting on Saturday to hear of those six testimonies of grace, of people wanting to be part of our church family. That's what God willing will be wonderfully encouraging about the baptisms on Sunday. To hear the testimonies of Anna and Liberty and Jude as they speak of God's great love to them in bringing them into the kingdom of light. You, you look at verses 17 to 20. Anna, Liberty and Jude are all going to tell you that God does what these verses say. He hears our prayers. He hears the prayers of broken and needy and sinful people who cry out for mercy from the awesome God. Please don't miss the importance of verse 18. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Some here tonight need to hear that as a warning because you are flirting with sin. Some need help to understand that verse in a way that doesn't get them lost in a very soft conscience that has them fearful that any awareness of sin is what's being described here. John Calvin has a lovely way of helping us not tie ourselves in knots here in verse 18. He says, in one sense, of course, God hears none but sinners. But, says Calvin, while believers make an unreserved confession of guilt before God, you hold nothing back. By this very thing they cease to be sinners, for God pardons them in answer to their prayers. Isn't that a wonderful thought? As you come to God, confessing your sin, we move from being in Adam to in Christ. And whilst we are still sinners in the sense that we keep on seeing in God's eyes, we go from being sinners in our identity to being sons and daughters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And sons and daughters can't cherish what God hates you can't that doesn't mean that we're not conscious of our sin every christian is conscious of their sin it means that it means you can't go running to god asking for his blessing assuming that you have open hands to receive when actually your hands are gripping tight the sin you refuse to kill and let go i was reading in my devotion this week that temptations are either fed or fought. Temptations are either fed or fought. So I ask you, as I've asked myself this week, are you killing sin or is sin killing you? Because they're the only options in the life 
that we live. And the wonderful hope of all of this is that God gives us the grace to not only fight, but to know that we will be victorious. The wonderful hope of Paul in 1 Corinthians is that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Brother and sister, if you know this evening that your heart is cherishing sin that is holding you back from being able to speak to the Father who loves you, kill it. If you're struggling to do so, speak to a mature Christian that you can trust. Ask that they would help you, to pray for you, to give you practical support, to help you not cherish what is holding you back from the God Well, you look at the end of verse 20. He is a God who not only doesn't reject our prayers, he doesn't withhold his love, his faithful love, his steadfast love. If you've ever come across the term and you're reading, it's his chesed love. It's his love that is a bound commitment to his people. Our God will not let you go and calls for us now to let go of everything else that would hinder us from loving him. So that we can do what? So that we can say, verse 16, come and hear all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me.